0: The promise of the living hope. I don't know if you thought about the significance of those words, especially in light of Easter that we celebrated just a few weeks ago, that we serve a living and resurrected Savior, a living God who's given us His Word, which is also described as active and living, able to pierced bones and marrow, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to help discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that goes directly into what we'll be looking at this morning. You can go and begin turning your Bibles to Matthew 15. But before we get into the sermon and our text this morning, I wanted to provide a hello, a brief hello, from our missionaries, the Swats who stopped by briefly on their way back. They were at a conference in Colorado and they had a layover in Atlanta and we got to enjoy them for a day and a half and uh, host them in our home. In fact, they, they left uh, for us uh, on the table up front. You can come and grab it and maybe it's a reminder to grab the prayer card for them, but some taffy for us to enjoy. It is not South African taffy, it is Colorado taffy from their trip. But nonetheless, uh, you know, what better way to stick them in our minds than to give us something, uh, something sticky and chewy. But uh, no, they, they are very grateful for this church and this body. They wish they could have spent more time with us and with you all, but uh, certainly wanted us to pass along their, uh, their warm regards and thankfulness for your prayers, for the ministry, and for the continued support that we provide. So please do continue to lift them up in your prayers, as well as our missionaries in Columbia, the hymuses. Um, They provide prayer requests and praise updates monthly uh, that we include in our um, our prayer sheet that goes out. We'll have a new one coming out here in a couple of weeks. So please do take the time to to pray over those things and to keep them all in your prayers. There's a question that has been posed. Perhaps you've heard it before and maybe you've thought about it question really gets to the root of our sinfulness and it's this, are are we sinners because we sin or do we sin because we are sinners? Think about that for a moment. Are we sinners because we slip up occasionally, some of us more frequently than others? Or do we sin because there is something about our very nature that makes us a sinner? You may have already thought about this, you may already have the answer in mind. But this question and its answer gets to the core of Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders who arrived from Jerusalem in Matthew 15. These leaders, as we discussed last week, were sent from Jerusalem to put an end to the growing influence and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus had landed with his disciples after crossing the sea in the region of Gennesaret. Word had quickly spread. The moment his feet touched the sand, it seems that those on the shore recognized him, and word spread rapidly like wildfire. And it wasn't long before these religious officials, the elite of the elite, came down or up from Jerusalem. They headed to the north. And they arrived because they were threatened by Jesus. They were threatened by his ministry. They were threatened by the fact that it sought to undermine this Religious system they had built upon the backs of the people. Their attempt at attacking Jesus through his disciples that we looked at last week has already backfired tremendously. And as we look at verses 10 through 20 this morning, Jesus undermines the rest of their arguments. There are two passages from Jeremiah that are oft quoted. The first is especially popular this time of year with high school and graduation. find it in almost every graduation card, especially in your Christian bookstore. Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And while it's possible for this to be a true statement, in fact, it is a true statement in the right context, in those greeting cards, it's a rather haphazardly use of this verse out of context, in fact... If you haven't read it recently, read the verses before and after, and you might choose a different card next time. However, there's another verse that is more directly related to our passage this morning from Jeremiah that you may be familiar with. You're not going to find it on any greeting card unless the greeting cards have begun to carry imprecatory Scripture. So Jeremiah 17 17.9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? At the risk of being too on the nose, it's here that we arrive at the heart of the matter. It is the desperately sick nature of the heart to which Jesus turns his attention in these verses. And in so doing, answers the question of what it is that defiles a person or makes them unclean in the sight of God, you remember this was the accusation of those Pharisees and Sadducees who arrived from Jerusalem, making this accusation against the disciples. Why the disciples? Well, we were were reminded last week, you attack the disciples, and you attack Jesus. Because regardless of what else he might say, if the lives of the disciples can be undermined, then that must be the tenor of Jesus' ministry. However, Jesus sidestepped their question initially. Showed the hypocrisy that exists within their very religious system. Even the question they asked. But Jesus now turns and he begins to address their question. And says, you want to talk about what it is that defiles a person? Let's do that. But let's do it the right way. And so what Jesus does this morning is he shows us sin's depth sin's effect, and sin's source. Before concluding in verse 20 that the accusation of these religious leaders is entirely without merit. Our task this morning as we look at sin's depth, its effect, and its source is not simply to recognize sin or what it is that makes one a sinner, but to identify the solution for sin and its remedies. Very easy to point out problems. We're all very good at that. But I encourage you to build the habit of when you have a problem, try to come with a solution. And we'll seek to do that this morning. If you haven't already turned there, turn in Matthew chapter 15 as we read together verses 10 through 20. After Jesus called the crowd to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Let's pray. Others, we turn our attention to the second half of Christ's interaction with these religious leaders, Pray that you would give us discerning minds to help draw our attention to the text, to what it is that you would teach us regarding the nature of sin, its source. Father, as we we evaluate this and are reminded of the defiling nature of the heart, let us be not so quick to point to others, but quick to look at ourselves To pray and to ask that your word would do its work. To do its careful heart surgery. Dividing between bone and marrow. Revealing the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Father, Jeremiah cried out, Who can understand the deceitful and desperately sick nature of the heart? And the answer immediately follows. It is the Lord, strong and mighty. Father, would you show yourself strong and mighty this morning? In your name, amen. Last week, we observed as Jesus exposed how far these religious leaders had fallen in their use of tradition to sustain their status, their position, and wealth over the people. They're now teaching these false doctrines, these man made doctrines that are intended to subjugate the people and make them dependent upon their religious rulers. Jesus, you see, is a direct threat against this system of religion, this Judaism that is devoid of true worship of God. He seeks to undermine their source of income or their source of wealth. He seeks to undermine their power. Their power is in keeping the people fearful and keeping them obedient to this list of rules, many of which are just man made rules, described here in this text as rules of the elders. And Jesus does not simply point out their defilement. But as we learn this morning, we'll see that they are guilty of the very charge they bring against Jesus and the disciples. It is, in fact, the religious leaders who are the ones who are unclean. Who have shown their defilement and been defiled by their own words. And Jesus locates the source of this problem. He is not concerned with the superficial sin, but with what lurks beneath the surface, the depth of man's depravity. And so in verses 10 through 11, Jesus calls to himself the crowds and highlights sin's depth. The crowds have not been absent, even in those first nine verses. The interaction was with Jesus, the disciples, the religious leaders who had arrived, but the crowds are still there. They've stepped back, perhaps out of deference, perhaps out of fear, drawn back, given space to this theological interaction, this discussion between Jesus and the religious leaders from Jerusalem. Now, however, Jesus calls to them. He calls them closer. This is important for everyone to hear. From the greatest... To the least. This lesson must not be missed. Whether you are a religious leader from Jerusalem or a farmhand and day laborer, Jesus says, Draw near. And so, as the crowds press in upon themselves to hear and capture every word that Jesus speaks, what is it that they hear? He says in verse 11, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles him. Simply put, sin runs much deeper than the food we eat or the rituals we follow. But why this focus on words and the mouth? Can a person sin or become unclean or sin in other ways? Well, the answer is obviously yes. But you see, what Jesus is doing is he's laying the foundation for what James and other New Testament writers will elaborate. It's this, if one is able to control the mouth, they are able to control the entire body. James writes in James 3, verse 2, For all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. You see, the mouth is the barometer of the heart. So Jesus focuses on the mouth as an indication of the entire person. For this reason, Jesus spoke previously to another group of religious leaders, another group of Pharisees and Sadducees who approached him back in chapter 12. Where he said to them in verse 34, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Whereas the Pharisees and Sadducees place great emphasis upon expanding and enforcing ritual purity, what people do, how they act, without a focus on inward sanctification, Jesus turns our attention back to the root of the problem. In fact, what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing was equivalent to, as one writer has put it, playing the fiddle while Rome burns. Jesus' words in Matthew 15 highlight sin's depth, that it is beneath the surface, lurking within the recesses of the heart. And this provides for us and begins to lay the foundation for a principle of inward purity that in time would become the foundation and the substitute for the elaborate system of ceremonial purification that ran throughout the Old Testament. But we don't see any further direct interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders. But like the crowds in the first nine verses who were there, though they weren't spoken to, the religious leaders are still there. We know they're still there because the very next section has the disciples relaying to Jesus the reaction of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to his words. Notice in verses 12 through 14, sin's effect. The effect it has both in the persons as well as in the response of the religious leaders. Now, I have to chuckle a little bit when I read these words. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Do you not know that they were offended? Is Jesus really so obtuse he didn't know that? And what did they expect him to do if they were offended? Apologize? Did they want him to restate this in an unoffending way? Why were the disciples concerned that Jesus had offended them? Well, the disciples likely approached Jesus out of a concern that Jesus had turned these religious leaders, these Pharisees away, and hardened them in opposition to himself and his ministry. In other words they're likely concerned that, Jesus, you've just made things harder for us. They relate that his words have caused the Pharisees to stumble. That word opposition is that word scandalon. We've run into it a few times. They've caused them to stumble. These are, after all, representatives of what is perhaps the most widely admired group of pious leaders in all the land. If anybody... If we want anybody to be on our side, if there's anybody we should try to win over Jesus, this is them. It's also not surprising that the Pharisees took umbrage at his statement. It's also not surprising that they took their protest to the disciples and not directly to Jesus. They couldn't go to Jesus and create a wedge between him and his disciples. They'll go to the disciples to try and create a wedge between them and Christ. These religious experts found Jesus' words too hard, something they could not accept, and to which they took strong exception so that they stumbled over it and are offended. Well, Jesus' response shuts down this line of questioning from his disciples, this concern they have that they have been offended. Verse 13, Jesus notes that every plant which is not which is not planted by His heavenly Father, will be uprooted. This is not simply a good word picture. It is a good word picture. But it is not simply a good word picture. This struck at the heart of Judaism. This statement looks back to the imagery that had been laid throughout the Old Testament of Israel being planted by God. And the religious leaders themselves particularly saw themselves as the ones planted by God. In Psalm 92, verse 12, we read, The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. If anyone thought they were righteous men, it was these Pharisees and Sadducees. Ezekiel 19.10 The prophet reminds wayward Israel, your mother was like a vine in your vineyard planted by the waters. It was fruitful, full of branches because of abundant waters. So Jesus' words look back. It would have pained the Pharisees and Sadducees to hear this what they would have considered caustic rebuke. But Jesus' words also look forward. These words in verse 13 look forward to what He will later teach in John 15, concerning the vine and the removal of every branch not abiding in Him that does not bear fruit. Jesus is making it clear That these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these religious leaders who are seeking to mislead and abuse the people are an invasive species. They have not been planted by God, they are not of God. And so the great vine keeper will uproot them. He then says to his disciples, Let them alone. Perhaps better translated as, leave them behind, ignore them. Ignore them. Answering their concern over the fact that they were offended, ignore the fact that they have been offended. And it provides a fitting connection between the warning of being uprooted and what follows in verse 14. Because Israel, and again, specifically her religious leaders, consider themselves to be the guide for the blind in this world. Leading them to the one true God. For example, we read in Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 7 I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as light to the nations to open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Israel, and again specifically her religious leaders, saw themselves as those leading the blind from prison. Paul notes the pervasiveness of this belief in Romans 2.19 where he writes beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2 in Romans. But if you bear the name Jew... And rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. You see, this is what the Jews believed. They were those who were to guide the blind. But what has Jesus just said? You are no better than the very blind that you are seeking to lead. Again, this rebuke would have been particularly harsh. He takes the exalted position they believe they have in the world and says they are no better than blind Gentiles. It is the blind leading the blind. These religious leaders came to Jesus looking to put a stop to his ministry and his influence over the people. However, these visitors from the south, these religious leaders from Jerusalem, have further exposed the misguided nature of their religion. In approaching and confronting Jesus, they have shown themselves to be blind, to shown themselves to be the ones in need of the light. And everyone knows what happens when a blind person leads another blind person. Sooner or later, they will stumble and fall into ruin. Notice here the deceitfulness of sin and the effect it has on persons. It blinds them, it obscures the truth. And while the blind guides, these false teachers are certainly to be ignored and rebuked harshly, note that they are not the only blind ones in this passage. They consider themselves as those who are leading the blind. Who are these other blind? These are the unbelieving people Of Israel. These are the Gentile nations to whom they were to be a light. These other blind still need the gospel. It's a reminder that the persons to whom we are called to are blind. How would you treat a blind person? Would you berate them for being blind? Would you mock them for their blindness? Would you make fun of them when they stumble and they fall? Sadly, I get the impression, especially from social media, that Many believers, at least in our country and our culture, are more concerned in soundbites and witty sarcasm towards unbelievers and sinners than they are in leading them to the light. The number of persons mocking our unbelieving leaders instead of praying for them is disturbing. Doesn't mean we close our eyes to foolishness or we cannot acknowledge it, but there is a difference between noting absurdity and foolishness and sinfully mocking persons. I can't help but wonder what type of change we might see if we would spend as much time praying for our unbelieving leaders as we currently do complaining about them or mocking them. Mm -hmm. Remembering the blindness of the unbelieving should help to cultivate the compassion we must have for the lost. The compassion Jesus had when He looked over Jerusalem and He wept precisely because They were being led by the blind and he saw the wickedness. He saw the sin, but he felt compassion over them. Sheep without a shepherd. We need to develop and cultivate this compassion for the lost to remember the blindness. And it takes practice to develop the habit of praying regularly. If you find that you're quicker to mock and to scoff at unbelief and the actions of those who are not believers than you are to pray for them, then start making it a habit. First off, pray that the Lord would stop your tongue. And then begin praying for the very people who you find yourself most easily drawn to mocking Sin's effect is far-reaching. It blinds persons to the very horrors of hell. That's why we must preach and continually preach the gospel. That's why Jesus calls us to be a light set on a hill. Jesus closes out his discussion on the effect of sin by explaining what Peter refers to as this parable. Parable. And Jesus' answer highlights the statement or parable to which Peter refers is found in verse 11. And so Jesus, is, Jesus explains here in verses 15 through 19 as he answers Peter's question, what is the real source of sin? It also answers that question to whether we sin because we are sinners or are sinners because we sin. I'm not going to give you the answer. See if you can fill it in. Jesus' answer to Peter's question in verse 16 on behalf of the other disciples is a bit surprising. We know that Peter is asking on behalf of all the disciples. It's not just his own inquisitive question. He's the spokesperson. We begin to see that more and more. We've already seen it somewhat, but we see it more and more as he speaks for the other disciples. Growing up, I would uh, often come up with clever ideas and things to do, and I would always make my brother be the one that would go and ask. That way, if my parents weren't happy with it, it was him who got in trouble, not me. Perhaps that's somewhat what the way these disciples were acting. Pe- Peter, you go ask this question. That way, we don't have to look as ignorant. But Jesus understands that all of them are asking this question. We, we know that because he refers to them when he says you in verse 16. It's the plural you, or to put it in the southern vernacular, are y'all still lacking in understanding also? I mean, Jesus expects a lack of understanding in the blind crowds who are not yet disciples. He expects a lack of understanding from the antagonistic religious leaders. But from his disciples, recognize what this says about discipleship and the far-reaching implications it has for us. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not a passive thing. It is active. It requires effort in understanding and applying the words of Christ. As such, this is an exhortation, perhaps even a rebuke to us as well. Are we still without understanding in so many of the things of Scripture? Are we really so preoccupied with the things of this world and the busyness of life that we do not yet understand so much of what Christ has left us? Where in your life would you receive the same answer? Do you not yet understand? And then ask yourself, what are you doing to understand? What are you doing to be a faithful disciple? Faithful follower who studies to show themselves approved unto God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. You know, Paul's talking to Timothy, but you understand that that applies to each and every believer. Are you being diligent to study, to pray, to seek understanding with regard to Scripture? You see, if the religious leaders had studied more carefully, if they had sought to truly understand the character of God from the Old Testament, they would never have asked the question they asked at the beginning of this chapter. They would have recognized that God desires above ritual purity a heart that is dedicated to Him. They could have found that in Hosea 6.6. where I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. They could have seen it in the beginning of Isaiah where that same thought is repeated. They could have seen it in Saul's shameful actions with Agag where his kingdom was ripped from him because God delights in the heart and in obedience to him above practice and ritualistic obedience doesn't mean those things are unimportant but they take second place they would have read numbers 9:10 with new eyes that say speak to the sons of Israel saying if any one of you or your generations become unclean Because of a dead person or on a distant journey, journey. he may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord. The Passover, arguably the most important ritual of any Israelite throughout the year. Partaking in that, and even then you can partake of it if unclean. Or later in Israel's history, we see again with regard to the Passover and preparing the heart not the body. You can turn there if you would like. Second Chronicles chapter 30. The scrolls have been found. Hezekiah has read them and wept. And they begin to reinstitute, sacrifice and worship. And we read in 2 Chronicles 30, Verse 17, for there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. That's a fancy way of saying they had not made themselves clean. They had not gone through all of the ritualistic practices that made someone ritually clean to partake of the Passover. Therefore the Levites were over the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was unclean in order to consecrate them to the Lord. But keep reading, for a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not purified themselves. They were unclean. Yet they ate of the Passover, otherwise they am prescribed. They didn't do what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, may the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. The Lord God of His fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. And what do you read in verse 20? So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Why? Because of those who sought the Lord, who prepared their heart, not their hands. And I like that word healed. In Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately often, which translated wicked, desperately sick, ill beyond repair. Who can know it? And yet it's the Lord who knows it, and it's the Lord who heals it. You see, the purification ordinances were never intended to create a barrier to God but were intended to provide an outward sign of the inward need and condition of the heart, of the need for the heart to be washed, the need for the heart to be cleansed. And so Jesus explains, returning to Matthew 15, Jesus explains that there is nothing outside of a person which they can ingest that will make them unclean, Because it's impossible for what you eat to enter the heart. Instead, what you eat enters the stomach. And our English translators have decided to make this a little cleaner than it actually is. It goes into the toilet. In fact, if you look in the margins, you'll find that that's where they decided to put that. Since food cannot defile a person then, how are they defiled? Surely a person can be defiled. That is, they can be unclean. Jesus says they are made unclean by what proceeds from the heart. Sin's source is in the heart. That is the seat of man's will, his desires, all that makes up a man, all that makes up a person. The religious leaders had created a system that implied that a person was only sinful or only uncleaned if they sinned. In other words, they are only a sinner if they sinned. Jesus turns it on its head. He says, no, the source is within. They sin because they're sinners. You are already unclean. You start out that way. The only solution is for your heart to be washed. It's to cry out as David did in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, Renew a steadfast spirit within me. The solution for sin, then, is a clean heart, not germ free hands. It's not that Jesus is unconcerned with ritual purity, but the primary focus is the heart. Now, Jesus is not, by the way, making the demands of a kingdom citizen easier than those of a fastidious Jew. He's not making life as a disciple somehow easier. He's actually made it a little harder. Because one's standing with God is not determined by one's ability to keep a list of outward rules, but by being able to control the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Which is a much more difficult task. It's one that only God can accomplish. And that again was the whole reason and purpose of the Old Testament rituals and laws was to point to the need of a Savior because you cannot do it by yourself. This cleansing of the heart is first done at salvation. We read that in Titus 3.5. where we read that he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done, in our own righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing, the regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And if you have not experienced this washing, then the call to you this morning is to recognize how your sins have offended a holy God. To not be blind to what your sin means. If you have not confessed your sin, if you have not trusted in Christ, is the only one who can save you from the consequence, the penalty of your sin, then call out to God. Do not be blind to the fact that this life is not all there is. That this life is but a moment of your experience that will go on for eternity and of your need to repent of your sins. Your need this morning is to call out, to repent of your sins. Cry out to the Lord for forgiveness. Recognize that Jesus Christ came to suffer the penalty for sins on your behalf and to put your faith and trust in the work that He has done. And the Lord has promised that none who come to Him will be turned away. But what about after this washing? Does that mean that there's no longer sin? If you're like me, you certainly wish that was the case. Augustine provides us with a helpful understanding of this. Because what, what actually changes? If I still sin after being washed, then what has changed? He reminds us, he takes us back in history, and he reminds us of Adam before the fall. See, before the fall, Adam and man was able to not sin. He was also able to sin, but he was able to not sin. But after the fall, man's heart was changed. It's perpetually sinful. It's passed on from generation to generation so that after the fall, man was unable not to sin. It was impossible to not sin. Why? Because you are a sinner by nature. That's where the hope of the gospel comes in. Because if I'm unable not to sin, then my eternal destination is secured. It's hell. But the hope of the gospel, that was introduced, by the way, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, talk of that promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. It was this one, this promised one that Noah's father looked looked toward. So that when Noah was born, he said, perhaps this one, Noah, will be the one that gives us rest from the toil and the work and the effects of sin. But trust in Christ, trust in the Messiah, Old Testament or New Testament, whether looking toward the cross or looking back to the cross, putting faith in Christ has now made it once again so that we are able to not sin. Doesn't mean we will not sin, but it once again restores us to the position of being able to not sin. But we fight against the flesh. And that flesh and that fight, and that constant turmoil, that sin which we fight against, which the writer of Hebrews said so easily entangles us, reminds us and spurs us to look forward to what Augustine called the glorified man who is in heaven unable to sin. Whereas before the fall, we were able to sin or not to sin. After the fall, unable not to sin. Reborn, we're once again able to not sin. We long for the day where we are unable to even sin. And so the transformation, what takes place on this earth, that washing that takes place, When we put our trust in Christ means that we are once again able to not sin but we look forward to and long for the day where we are unable to sin. Until then we must strive against sin. Again a sin which so easily entangles us because of this flesh but God has provided an additional or a continual washing that comes through ongoing repentance and confession of sin. We see this from John, in John 1, 1 John 1, 1.9, what does he write? If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the solution for sin. Repentance and confession and turning to the Lord. There's no amount of scrubbing you can do, no antibacterial wipe you can use, that will rid you of the stain of sin. Jesus provides a fitting conclusion to his explanation of ritual purity and defilement. He finally answers the charge of these religious leaders directly in verse ten or in verse 20. He says, To eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. The disciples, and by extension Jesus himself, are innocent of the charges of the Pharisees. They have not broken the ordinance of God and they have not demonstrated wickedness and defilement. The implication against the religious leaders, though, is clear. In the very thing you wish to accuse these disciples of mine, you stand condemned. Those those Pharisees and Sadducees left that day To return more antagonistic, filled with more hatred, because they were confronted with their sin. How you respond when confronted with your sin says everything about your heart. If you have put your faith in Christ, then when you are confronted with your sin, there is a mourning over sin. We discussed this as we worked through the Sermon on the Mount There was no such mourning by these Pharisees and Sadducees. They did not recognize that they are sinners in desperate need to be washed and cleansed. They were unwilling to acknowledge that the only way to deal with the source and the stain of sin is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're reminded of the hymn which asks the question... What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it goes on to say, and I hope this is true of you, O precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the reminder. The reminder of our sin, of the wickedness. Father, the fact that we are still within these fleshly bodies and still have those temptations to sin. But we thank you and praise you that we are no longer slaves to sin that we have been set free from bondage to once again not sin. Father, we know we are going to slip up. We know we will sin. Father, we will do the very thing we do not wish to do. Father, make us a people that continually demonstrate repentance, that demonstrate the grace and the mercy that is offered at the cross as we turn toward you and we seek that purification that only you can provide because there is no other fount. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is our living hope. In your name, amen.